0: This is a WTOP original podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the unique pleasure of welcoming to the podcast, Jean-Nicola Mayo and Jay Boberg, who are partners in J a winery located in Willamette Valley, Oregon. Nicolas Jay is the story of a three decade friendship between famed Burgundian winemaker, Jean Nicolas Mayo and visionary music entrepreneur Jay Boberg and their shared love of Oregon Pinot Noir. Now, Jean Nicolas and Jay became friends in 1988 when Jean Nicolas was studying abroad in the United States. Actually, I believe in Philadelphia, and he was studying energy economics, and we'll get into that in a second. But the two found that they shared similar philosophies about life and, most importantly, music and wine, and their friendship blossomed from there. Now, while Jean Nicolas immersed himself in guiding his family's renowned domain, Mayo Camuset, and Jay continued to build his own IRS record into a seminal indie label. And again, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Big fan, Jay, huge fan. They stayed friends over the next quarter century. They discovered a shared interest in the quality and potential of Pinot Noirs from Oregon, which Jay has been enjoying since 1983, and Jean Nicolas has been exploring since attending the International Pinot Noir Celebration in Willamette Valley in 1991. But it was in 2011 that was the seminal moment for both of them. Jay was visiting Willamette Valley, and it reignited his fascination with the region. He approached Jean-Nicolas with the idea of starting a small winery in Oregon. And from there, Nicolas Jay was born. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Jean-Nicolas, I'm a huge fan of your wines. Jay, I'm a huge fan of your music. It is such a pleasure to have both of you here together with me on the podcast, but I'm going to kind of let you take it from here. I want you to tell your own story. This is absolutely fascinating that the two of you met all the way back in 1988, stayed in touch, and 25 years later decided to start this project. How did it really all come about?
2: Well, thank well, you for it, having us. Uh, it. uh, yes, it's, it's great to be there, and uh, thank you for having us. And yes, it's, it's, a, it's a nice story because it's a story of, of youth and, and, and friendship. I was studying in the United States, and this uh, was a great experience. As you said, I was studying energy economics uh, very far away from mine. I knew that I was going to be working at the family business back in France, but I didn't know exactly whether that would, uh, that I would like it or not. And I had this opportunity of coming to the States and study, uh, study there. And it was, I mean, studying in, in, into a great university in the U.S. is still a great opportunity when when you have it so it's something that you don't refuse and I did I was I, I was very happy there worked a lot um and among my um, my 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 very good friends was Jay's sister Jill and who was uh, who was studying uh, in the same program and uh I met Jay at uh, at a party Jill was, uh, was 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 having and Jay was uh, was traveling and uh, and promoting his uh, his uh, one of his bands at the time in Philadelphia and Jay was I met Jay at uh, at uh, her sister's party back in '88 and that was uh, you know Jay was uh, we we uh, we got engaged in, in a way uh, and uh, and Jay was very interested in wine already had a few uh, uh, had uh, discovered uh, wine a few years uh, a few years back and was interested in my story. I couldn't talk much to him about wine then because I was not an expert and I was had not really started working in uh, my family business. But he followed my course uh, and how I, I, I was uh, how I was doing, and we stayed in touch. Uh, and um, that was how it started. We, uh, I visited in, in L.A. a few times. He visited uh, in uh, Burgundy a few times. I, um, actually, I, um, uh, I went to see Jay uh, not really during my honeymoon in 93, when I married with Natalie in 93, but very, very close. It was our second trip together, Natalie and I, when we were at Jay's house in, in L.A. I remember
0: that, that was a fond uh, memory. It was one of these things you can't make up, Scott. It's these mm. new things that kind of just have to happen, right? Uh, mm. And it's sort of a, a unique meeting uh, through my sister and then a shared love of wine. And uh, I can't say you mentioned that he, he shared my love of music. He does, Jean-Nicolas does share a love of music, but not necessarily the same music. I would invite him to come see my bands and occasionally he would come and he liked the police and he liked a couple of the bands, but most of the stuff, (laughs) you were being completely honest, Jean Nicola, was not your cup of tea, but, but I certainly was a fan of, of his wines. And uh, as Jean Nicola mentioned, I had been exposed to wine very young. Um, uh, My roommate had worked for a, in college had worked for a wine distributor. And so I got exposed to wine when everybody was drinking Jack Daniels and beer. And, uh, and then in the early 80s, like 84, 85, I met Kermit Lynch, who as well was a big music guy. And, and I developed a friendship with him and he was interested in music and I was very interested in wine. And, and he was very influential in terms of introducing me to various different producers. And when I would travel around, which I traveled so much for music with the bands and to see our distributors and to promote and market the, the music that, that our artists were creating, uh, I would have time in Europe or in different places, New Zealand, Australia, and I, and I would get to go see producers and, and, and visit various different wine regions. So I, I got to be – I loved the traveling. I loved the food connection, and, and I became – I don't want to say collector because, A, I didn't have any money at that time, but I also don't believe in collecting. You, you Buying wine to drink is what it's about. And, and, and most importantly, the great thing about wine is that you share it I mean, I don't know about you, but very rarely do you open up a bottle and, and drain it yourself. It's usually you're opening a bottle to share it with someone, either you know with your family or with a group of friends and so forth. And so jean Nicholas and my friendship was really based on that initially. And uh, it was great. And, and then you move the story forward to the. You know, many years later, uh, he obviously Jean Nicolas was super successful in in building up the the Mayo Camusay name. And uh, as I joke with all my friends, uh, as I joke to him, my friends can neither find your wine, and when they find it, they can barely afford it um, because there's so much demand for it. Uh, and he's done such a good job at not only making fantastic wines, but also you know creating this uh, this demand and and the rarity and so forth of them. And so when I approached Jean Nicola in 2000, whatever it was, 11, 2012, I got the kind of a response to this uh, this idea that you would expect from a very good friend, which was maybe, <laughs> what do you, what do you mean, maybe, you know, would you like to do this winery project? And, and what he said was actually the first of many, many smart things that he said to me over the years. And he actually continues to say really smart things to me. Uh, <laughs> it's actually consistent, fairly consistent. But he said to me, "Look, I've spent all this time m- trying to build up Mayo Camisais and work so hard to get the quality and the reputation and all the rest of that stuff, and trying to, you know, be at the pinnacle of, of Pinot Noir production in the world, which he has done. And is I can't exactly start making wine in Oregon and make something that's sort of middle of the road, right? We have to do the work to go to Oregon. We have to." taste fruit from the different vineyards. We have to make sure that we can access fruit from vineyards that we believe we can make a world-class wine. Now, we may or may not, that'll be yet for to be determined and, and folks like yourself, Scott, and, and other wine uh, experts will determine whether or not we're making a w- world-class wine. But what Jean Nicolas was saying is that we have to believe that we have the quality of ingredients to be able to make world-class wine. It says, if we can't, then I I don't wanna do it. So that is what really started a two-year period where he made uh, many, many trips to Oregon, and I'd meet him at the airport in a rental car, and we would go visit three, four wineries a day. And uh, because he's John Nicolomeo, everybody wanted to meet him. So there was no problem getting access to the sellers. but we would visit these wineries and we would taste a ton of different uh, barrels and from different vineyards and different ABAs mm-hmm. within Willamette. And we did that for pretty much most of a two-year period that really formed our understanding of what was available, what fruit we could access and, and also verified the quality that we both saw as and the potential that was being starting to be achieved and and much more potential to be achieved uh, from the wines coming out of Oregon.
1: You know, that's an interesting point that you made, Jay. And and by the way, I have to say, Jean-Nicolas, I am uh, one of those people who, in fact, do try to find your wines, the uh, Mayo Camuset. And then, of course, when I do find them, it's it's a, a matter of maybe uh, opening another savings account <laughs> to get the wines, but I have to say they they are absolutely worth it. So that actually brings me to the point where here you are in Oregon, uh, Jean Nicolas, and you know Jay is taking around all these wineries. You're tasting these wines, and I, I want to get your perspective because Oregon is not Burgundy. I want to know what grabbed your attention why why oregon why why not another wine region in the united states
2: well it's it's um it's very interesting because i think that uh, my first um, contact uh, with uh, uh, american pinot was more in california i was very conscious that in california where they do, I mean, there are very great uh, Pinot Noirs being uh, produced in California. But at the time uh, when I started, uh, it, was, it was difficult. It was difficult and I kind of understood the, uh, the, the, the will of uh, trying to achieve it I was not thrilled at first with the conditions in uh, in California, and now, of course, you have all the Pinots are made right next to the coast on the coast, which are extremely interesting. But at the time, it was in the middle of uh, the Napa Valley, and I was I was not you know I was not excited about that. And I'm talking, uh, you know, beginning of the 90s, actually. And I thought that I went to Oregon in 91. I thought that Oregon was much more interesting in terms of uh, uh, the, the, the the natural conditions. I didn't return to Oregon for a long time, but I was, I, yes, I was definitely thinking I was much more impressed with Oregon then. So I guess this very initial um, um, experience, uh, early experience played a, a part in shaping my mind in in, with the, with the fact that uh, there was potential in Oregon,
1: And nothing so, against California, right? I mean, it just wasn't the style <laughs> of, of Pinot Noir you were looking to make.
2: Yes, it was uh, definitely not the style of Pinot I wanted to 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 do. Although at the time there were interesting, very interesting Pinot Noirs, but it uh, was not. I was not not attracted to it. And I must say also that uh, with California, it, it, it's obviously a the, the center of wine in. in west and uh, there is um, a lot of dedication and greatness in, in that region it, it was not exactly um, it's not exactly the, the kind of wine region i was um, really in sync with uh, california is, is really a lot like bordeaux you know and it's it's, it's kind of lavish uh, and I found myself much more at home in, with, the, with the spirit of uh, Oregon, which, of course, is very American, but it's also smaller and, and, and more uh, in sync with, uh, with what I know of, about rural and France and, and, and Burgundy. Also, the big thing about California also is that when you think about California, you think about grape wines, but you do not necessarily think first about Pinot, Pinot Noir.
1: I think Sonoma yeah. might take exception, but yes, yeah, Sonoma, Napa, thinking. absolutely.
2: Of course, but when you think about Oregon, you think about Pinot Noir. When you think about Burgundy, you think about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. But you. You, I mean, these are regions which are dedicated to Pinot Noir, and this comes first when you think about, uh, when you name the region. And I think this is really important to have a, uh, a wine region which is dedic- dedicated to a grape variety that looks, um, that, that really looks into doing, into making the greatest possible wine within that grape variety. Uh, I think that that is what makes ultimately a wine region great and worth it and there uh, are many I mean quality uh, wine quality is increasing everywhere in the world uh, but when you, you really get the the, the Attention of the public when you're really dedicated to, uh, to 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 something, and this is what one of the many things I like about Oregon is that it's 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 really dedicated to Pinot Noir, and this is and there is a critical mass of uh, of people, uh, of fitness and an area dedicated to, to Pinot Noir. So it's it's really where uh, with these conditions you can really make progress uh, over time with the the wines. And this is a very encouraging uh,
1: environment. But but let's be very candid here. Oregon is not Burgundy. And uh, I'm very curious as to what your vision, and Jay, your vision, is for having a, a very famous Burgundian winemaker. I mean, Jean Nucla, you are, you know, I don't want you to blush. Well, nobody can see you blush because we're on audio, but uh, I don't want you to blush, but you are Burgundian royalty. So I'm, I'm very curious as to, Jay, your vision in bringing somebody like Jean Nucla to Willamette Valley to make Pinot Noir. Is it in a Burgundian style? Is it in a Willamette Valley style? What's your vision, Jay, for how this wine turns out?
0: Well, I think one of the things that um, made, has made this partnership work comes down to a really simple fact, and that is that we like the same style of wines. If you laid out five bottles of Burgundy, different, different makers of, say, Chambertin, or you laid out five different producers of Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley or in Sonoma, and Jean-Nickel and I tasted them, I pretty much guarantee you we would pick the same one or two bottles as being our favorites, the style of wine that we've been drinking together. And this is the benefit of us having drank wine together for 25 years, is that we really share a lot of the same ideas of what makes a great wine and the style that we, we are aiming to make is, is consistent. And, and that is really making wines that we want to drink. And it sounds really cliche, but it's, it's true. I mean, if, if you're making, if your goal is not to make wines that you're trying to sell for the highest price, or you're trying to do this or trying to do that, the goal is simply to make wine that we want to drink. And we're either egotistical enough or stupid enough to think that if we love it, then there's gonna be some other people out there that love it too and to be honest with you that's how i used to sign bands was exactly the same i signed bands that i loved that i loved the music of and miles signed bands that he loved and and that ultimately that conviction and that passion that we had for those bands much like jean nicole and i have for our wines is what is is something that's contagious and that and that's what people really pick up on so that's the first thing I think that's important. In terms of making Burgundy wines in, in Oregon, it's, it's a, obviously a preposterous question we get that a lot of people will say, hey, you guys are making Burgundy in Oregon, and John Nicola kind of smiles and he's very polite. But the reality is, is that obviously you can't make Burgundy wines any place outside of Burgundy. Why is that? Because you need Burgundian grown grapes. <laughs> what Jean Nicola has done and what is really exciting, not only for Nicolas J. but also, I think, exciting for the entire region and all the other winemakers that Jean Nicola has built relationships with there in Oregon, is that he brings his methodology and his his upbringing, as it were, the time he learned from Henri Jaillet and all the things that he's learned in the last 25 years from making wine in Burgundy. And he brings all of that to Oregon. And I think, Jean-Nicola, you should jump in here, but you started out pretty much making wines identically to how you did in Burgundy and said, well, let's just see what works. And we end up with wines that are different, but a lot of the process and a lot of the steps that you take and a lot of the, the sort of thinking is, is very similar to what you do in Burgundy.
2: Yes, the method is is, is really uh, is really very similar, so it uh, it really works. So that's uh, that's uh, exciting, and uh, but I certainly bring a, a, a Burgundian eye to, uh, to to the region, and uh, uh, and, and the wines are uh, certainly uh, bearing some resemblance with what I'm doing here in Von romanee at uh, Maison Camuset. Uh, One funny uh, thing we can, you know, it was not that funny at the time, but uh, for our first vintage in 2014, uh, which was a very warm vintage in Oregon, we had a a, a critic saying, well, you know, I'm I'm disappointed because I would have expected much more Burgundian wine from Jean-Nicolas and this is really very new world, this 2014. And, and of course the, that was, you know, the, that's typically the answer to, uh, to your question, the fact that it was made perhaps in a Burgundian w- way but with, a, uh, with some Oregon grapes and in 2014 that was a very warm vintage and the wine uh, uh, ended up being quite different from uh, w- what uh, we were doing in, uh, in, in Burgundy. It was, you know, some expectations are a bit weird. You know, of course, you don't want to uh, uh, try to to impose a, a method and different country. You want to adapt, of course. But sometimes some people are surprised that you know I'm not making <laughs> <any> Burgundy <Burgentine laughs> argy. It's 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 not possible. But what is exciting is that. I really believe, after all these years, that um, Oregon has a, uh, a number of features and conditions that allow for great Pinot. They are a bit different than uh, than Burgundies, but certainly uh, they exist. And, I, and, and I'm very excited, as Jay uh, must have been with these bands and is now with with these wines to. Actually, bring up to, um, to to the market or to the public great personalities. I mean, we know the terroirs, we know the um, uh, uh, Burgundy, we know what a Chambolle-Musigny or Bon romane uh, is or what reputation it has. We have an idea now with with Oregon, but it's still great to be uh, to, to, to to share the excitement that we have when we. Uh, uh, when we taste the wine, some of the wines we make, and uh, from great vineyards or great areas, and say, "Oh, well, this is this has great character," and we we really discover the, the character of these uh, of these wines. We in a way we make them, but it, we we also let the wines guide us, and uh, uh, I let them. Uh, uh, show themselves, express their personality. And I'm here to guide the wine, to uh, to bring the wine to uh, to maturity. I don't have, uh, when I'm doing it on Hills or, uh, uh, or McMinnville I don't have a set idea of what where I want to end up. I, I, I look at the wine and I say, well, you know, this is, wow, this is stunning. Yeah, And you surprise me and you surprise me with... Uh, your minerality, or you surprise me with your power, whatever. Let's 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 show that. Let's uh, let's uh, feature that in a way that will that will impress people or and please people. But I'm not uh, really trying to, uh, to 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 do something else. So this this has been a very interesting and exciting journey in Argon to discover all these wines and to discover all the. the the great personality that I think are really worth uh, presenting to the public.
1: Jean-Nicolas, I have to tell you, I'm thrilled and relieved to hear that you're making Oregon Pinot in Oregon. So that's just (laughs) one, as as you know, before we started the podcast, that was kind of one of my pet peeves that I think that too many people expect Burgundian wines coming out of uh, Willamette Valley. And uh, as you've just so eloquently expressed, we're really using the best techniques of both worlds to bring out the best of Oregon fruit. And I really do appreciate that.
0: Could I jump in on one sure. thing just to add in terms of what he was talking about? One of the things that uh, Jean nicolas values, and, and therefore Tracy and I value as well, as, as we're making these wines, is the reflection of the vintage. And what Jean Nickel was just talking about, about when he's uh, uh, tasting the grapes before we, we pick them or when they're in the vat and they're fermenting is really being able to, to isolate and, and get, a, get a handle on what the individual personality of that vineyard and that vintage is. And then maximizing the kind of, as he says, guide that, that, those wines to sort of maximize their personality. And what's interesting is, is that it's different every year. Every year, the vintage is different. The weather is slightly different. Those vines are one year older. And so consequently, the root system is, has provides different reflection of the, ter- of the terroir and, and that specific place. And so consequently, when you taste the 14, you taste the 15, you taste the 16, you taste the 17... You're able to tell that these were made by the same guy. I mean, the methodology and the approach is the same, yet there are absolute variances and differences between the vintages that reflect that. And I think that's a really important distinction. I mean, non-intervention is a very important thing. There's a lot of ability for winemakers these days to to be an interventionist, to change it, to impact it, so that you get a more consistent wine. And there are certainly wines out there that don't vary so much from vintage to vintage because the winemakers have done things to ensure that when you get to that steakhouse and you open up that bottle of whatever it is, it tastes kind of the same every time. And that is the opposite of our philosophy. It's the opposite of Jean Nicolas' philosophy, which is extremely natural in its approach and extremely Mm -hmm. reflective of what nature provides and those vineyards provide from year to year.
1: So the styles are going to be similar, but the wines are going to be completely different based on the vintage. I love it. Now, Mm -hmm. just by the way, Jay, you mentioned somebody named Tracy
0: Tracy Kendall is our associate winemaker, and she's kind of boots on the ground. She she is uh, Jean Nicolas' right hand and uh, is been with us since the 2015 vintage uh, and is fantastic, uh, has been a very big part of our success and is a very big part of the family.
2: She's been very helpful and has a lot of uh, initiatives too. I mean, I, I learned from her
1: uh, a lot um... She's a great contributor to our wines. I look forward to meeting her someday. Now, um, I have to confess at this part of the podcast that I kind of have celebrity goggles on for a couple of reasons. Of course, we've talked about Jean Nicolas and your amazing um, vineyards and your wines that you're making in Burgundy. Jay, I had mentioned briefly in your introduction that you are the co-founder of IRS Records, which shaped my musical youth, if you will. I mean, with bands like Sting and Oingo Boingo, Danny Elfman, oh my God, the Go-Go's, Wall of Voodoo, Fine Young Cannibals, Belinda Carlisle, the list goes on. I mean, it's just amazing to meet you. So I'm kind of gushing a little bit on this mm-hmm. podcast. But you you had mentioned, Jay, when before we started the podcast, that there are some similarities between winemaking and making music. And I'm fascinated by that concept. And before we get into actually tasting the wines, if you would just take a minute and touch on what you mean by that. Well, I think
0: fundamentally making wine and, and making music are both creative processes. And uh, I think you have to start from that premise because they truly are. And, and Jean Nicolas is an artist making his wine in very much the same way that, that uh, you know, uh, the guys in R.E.M. were artists creating their music. And when I say that there's a lot of similarities, what I mean by that is, is that there are so many variables, there are so many things that go into the making of music or the making of wine that all have certain judgment calls along the way. Some of them are technical judgment calls. I mean, when you're recording a record in terms of the the snare sound or the kick drum or how you're recording it, the microphones, the mixing of it in terms of where you place the vocals in the mix and, and how much space you create. I was always a big fan with having mixes that had space so that you could actually listen to the bass player, you could listen to the drum, you could listen to the vocals and, and, and so forth. Um, uh, but there's, those are technical attributes, but then there's also what I consider to be more instinctive and, in, and, in, in artistic judgments in terms of, of obviously the writing of the song, you know, the, the singing, the playing, all the rest of those different things. Well, wine is very, very similar. Um, Certainly, there are technical aspects to making wine that you re- require knowledge and education, and in certain case, you know, equipment and things along those lines. But an awful lot of winemaking is judgment and instinct. It's you know, when when we uh, are doing our samples and we're trying to make our decisions as terms of when we're going to pick the grapes when they're at the right moment to maximize the potential for that vintage. I'll never forget in 2015, Jean Nicolas was actually in Burgundy doing the Burgundian harvest and we were having our daily Zoom and we were sort of reporting back to him of what was going on. And Tracy and I were talking about the fact that these grapes, that the taste, the flavor when we were tasting them in the vineyard was evolving, but the numbers were not. So the technical data was not showing an evolution in the bricks. But yet when we were tasting and we said, you know, this really tastes more, has more complexity, it tastes more, more full, there's more fruitness. And finally he said, look, this is not, we're not picking our grapes based on numbers alone. We're picking the grapes based on a combination between flavor and and what we're tasting and what we're feeling about their ripeness and what the numbers said. It's 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 a mixture. And in which case, we then made our decision in terms of what we collectively made to when to pick. And, and a lot of the same things go on in music. Uh, it's very, very similar. And, uh, and ultimately, it's an artistic endeavor.
1: So we're getting a little bit of the snare, a little bit of the bass, and a little bit of the vocals in here. Exactly. Huh?
0: And every winemaker has to make all those decisions. And how those decisions are made have real impact on, on, on what it is that you taste.
1: Well, forgive the upcoming pun, but it's time to go-go to the what's in your glass part of our podcast. So so I'm very excited about this, uh, gentlemen, that um, you were kind enough to send a couple samples my way. And uh, we're going to start off with the 2018 Chardonnay. Which one of you wants to kick off the description of this wine? Tell me a little bit about it. What part of Willamette Valley are you getting your fruit from, or where are the vineyards located?
2: So it's it's really um, we started with making a a, a blend from uh, uh, the various vineyards uh, we source our fruit from, and uh, so it's really uh, we started making a Willamette Valley. So sourcing fruit from Dundee Hills, McMinnville, Eola, et etc. Um, we really wanted to to bring a the essence, so to speak, of uh, the Willamette Valley, and then by with this process, we also uh, came through uh, great personalities, great wines uh, that we wanted to show on their own, so to speak, because I, we thought that they, they were especially interesting uh, and that they had uh, uh, personalities that were that were especially. Uh, Striking. Uh, so this is uh, this is basically the the, the, the the philosophy, and the Chardonnay is about the same. Um, I think you have the Affinité Chardonnay, um, and uh, it's uh, it's a blend from uh, our um, some Chardonnay from our Vineyard Bishop Creek and some uh, fruit sources elsewhere in the valley. So this this is extremely interesting because I think that uh, Chardonnay from Oregon is 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 really taking off uh, and has been enjoying a great evolution in the last 15 years and it's I mean we get very interesting wines from from Oregon uh, uh, and uh, uh, it shows a um, a character which uh, which is very balanced very uh, fragrant perfumey, and uh, uh, has great 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 potential and um, so this Affinité Chardonnay is uh, is made to um, be enjoyed relatively early on and we also make a Bishop Creek Chardonnay which is a a more serious wine and has um, we think a very good capacity to age and and that's it it's it's really exciting to see uh, there are also the uh, the shaping and of uh, great personalities in, in Chardonnay and uh, we're, we're extremely extremely excited where we're seeing the same development in Chardonnay as with uh, Pinot in, uh, in Oregon and it's very 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 exciting.
1: Well I'm very excited to try this I can tell you that right off the bat those aromas are intoxicating, they're beautiful. I'm getting like a lemon meringue pie, I'm getting pear blossom and nectarine just bubbling up uh, out of the bouquet here and I can't wait to try it. It's actually, I'm salivating just smelling this wine. I just, I mean, it's it's, uh, amazing. I know, know.
2: it's it's great.
1: Tasting this Chardonnay though, wow. The first thing that hits me right on the palate is the balance, Mm. it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. The acidity, the fruit structure just are in perfect harmony on this wine. You know, you say it's, it's you know, ready to drink now. It's easy drinking. This is a serious wine. Uh, I mean, I'm going to disagree with you. It, 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 this is a serious wine. And, and this is a wine that I think you could enjoy both, both on its own. And I think it would be incredibly food friendly. A butter poached lobster and this wine would be very happy together. <laughs> In my very humble opinion,
0: it has that crispness uh, to be able to to stand up mm. to food um, for sure. Um, yeah. But stylistically, I think Scott, it is a is a Chardonnay again that, that are the kind of Chardonnays that we like to drink, which are the ones that are balanced. And to have you call it perfectly balanced. I mean, we could just stop the podcast right there and I'm, I'm, I'm ready to leave because that is our goal. I mean, it's for the Pinots and the Chardonnay is this idea of balance uh, between the structure, the acidity and the fruit and complexity and so forth. And I find disappointing in wines is when they're not balanced, you know, and you see these wines that are, are all acid and structure and no fruit. And then you see these wines that are these big fruit bombs that, you know, a lot of people love, but, but, but they don't have the structure and the acidity to, to offset and, and, they're, and they're so ripe. And to hear you say that this is perfectly balanced is, is music to my ears, that that is exactly what we're going for.
1: No pun intended, right, Jay? Well, maybe slightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, mission accomplished, gentlemen. That is, a, that is a beautiful wine. And again, the fruit's lovely. The acidity is just pitch perfect, just pitch perfect. And uh, I might want to mention at this point that due to the wonders of technology, Jean Nicola is joining us from Burgundy. Jay, you're on the West Coast and I'm in the, the mountains of Utah right now. And so while it may be, uh, I don't know, Jay, do you, do you have a glass in front of you? It might be a little early for you to be drinking this. And Jean-Nicolas, uh, it might be a little late for you, but it's, I feel like the, you know, the, the middle child in the three bears, it's just perfect for me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's a very friendly
0: wine. Yeah.
1: yeah yes, and, I, oh. and I'm glad to be making friends with it right now.
0: All the so, grapes are, um, are organically farmed. Um, oh. In fact, all of, the, all of the grapes that go into all of our wines are either organically farmed, biodynamically farmed, and then we have one vineyard that follows what they call the live protocol, L-I-V-E, sure. yep. which is the yep. unique sustainable farming protocol uh, unique to Oregon.
1: So talk a little bit about that. Before we get into the second wine. I'm very curious about the, the decision to go organic and biodynamic. It, it definitely more and more vineyards are heading that way, and I love hearing about it. But it's becoming a thing now, and people are actually actively seeking out wines that are either organic, biodynamic, or live, sustainable
2: Yes, it's. Um, uh, I mean, it's it's absolutely uh, essential, of course, and uh, one of uh, one of the ideas uh, behind that is that uh, you know when you um, try to find a balance with your environment, you uh, end up having a balance in your wine too, and uh, you want to uh, really um, try to obtain some some harmony and. Um, and of course, also, there is the concept of uh, sustainability. The fact that, uh, you know, a vineyard is there uh, for a long time. It's a uh, 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 its a culture uh, uh, which is uh, really um, planted, a uh, plant that, that lives long. So you have to find a, a, a way to accommodate the, uh, the environment. And its uh, it's not always easy. Doing wines... Uh, making wines in Burgundy and Oregon also you can I mean you have um, a a, uh, an easier environment in Oregon regarding uh, the climate than in Burgundy so I think it's it's a bit easier to make um, uh, wines uh, and and be organic in uh, in Oregon it rains less during the, the 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 season in Oregon so it's it's really I mean, I feel a kind of obligation when I see how difficult it is in Berkeley. Sometimes I, I feel a kind of obligation to uh, do it and to try it and, 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 and try to master it in Oregon because definitely conditions are, uh, are, are easier in, uh, in Oregon.
0: I think that we have an obligation to try to maximize the potential of what these lands can can create what these vineyards can create. And much like the difference between how a tomato tastes when it's been grown, you know, you buy it at the farmer's market and it came from someone's organic vineyard and and outdoors and all the rest of it. And you eat that tomato versus the tomato you buy in, you know, February that came from a hothouse that was, you know, used a lot of chemicals and so forth. There's a big difference in the way those two tomatoes taste. And so I, I, I don't know, we, I think we feel strongly both from an environmental standpoint, from a, a looking after the, the earth and looking after the land, and, and frankly, from just a maximizing the flavor and the potential of the grapes that organic and biodynamic is, is, is the way to go. And if, we're, if you're trying to make the best wine in the region, or one of the best wines in the region, if whatever whatever your your, your success rate at that, if that's what your goal is, then you want to be doing everything you can to try to, to to maximize the potential of the grapes, and we do that in in many ways beyond just farming organic. Uh, we have this whole vine to vat process that we've initiated in the vineyard where. Um, Mm-hmm. And really really what it stemmed from, no pun intended, was the bat you know, you have the cluster hanging on on on, on the vines and when you're doing the sampling, you're going around and, and sampling berries and those clusters are perfect. They're just hanging there. They're perfect. And then when you get them back to the winery and, you, and you're sorting them out on the table that first year, we realized that, you know, a lot of these want, the grapes had gotten crushed in the bins. They had this, they had that, and they were not perfect. And what we ended up doing was we ended up accessing these cherry bins from the Washington cherry growers that are these very shallow bins and then you can only really get one layer or layer and a half of, of clusters. And we started coaching the, the pickers who were picking all of uh, all of the grapes to just gently set them into their buckets. And then we very gently set those grapes into these very shallow cherry bins. And then we put them onto trucks in, 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 in smaller quantities so that The whole goal is to be able to get them back to the winery without them being crushed and without oxidation starting to happen and so on and so forth. And this really stemmed, another bad pun, this really stemmed from Jean Nicolas' uh, treatment of grapes in Burgundy. And when he's making Richebourg, quite literally, every grape has value, every, every single grape. And so bringing that mentality to the process um, is part of what we're trying to do. So every year we we analyze that whole process of how we're getting grapes out of the vineyard and into the vat and how can we improve that and have that grape get there um, without it being banged up or or broken or losing juice or any of that kind of stuff. So I think it's really all about an approach, right? It's just about trying to make the best wine that we possibly can.
1: I'm going to make a music analogy here uh, on that. So, you know, it's really hard to make great music with damaged instruments and these grapes are your instruments as you're, you're bringing them in. And I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And I'm very excited about tasting the 2017 Pinot Noir because I have to tell you, uh, I snuck a, a a quick sniff uh, of the bouquet. And I don't know if you could tell, but I actually got chills. I really got chills just so well, I haven't even tasted it yet. And wow. and the thing that just struck me right on the nose is this is Oregon Pinot. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's elegant. I can't wait to taste it, but it's Oregon Pinot. It's not Burgundy. It's not Sonoma. That's just really smells of a place if I could make that analogy. So I'm uh, forgive me while I go in on this, but it's just, and by the way, I've had it open for a a couple hours because you know the 2017 right. relatively young i wanted to make right. sure I, I i gave the uh, the old girl a chance to get out and stretch her legs a bit
2: yeah 17, 17 was a, a a very nice vintage because it was a uh, a vintage where the uh uh the growing the final days of the growing season was was really um Overcast and cool. Uh, we actually had a little bit of rain, which of course started us uh, worrying about on, on the other way. Uh, you know, you're expecting the weather not to be too warm, and then the weather is not too warm, and then you're worrying about uh, the weather not becoming too cool. But that's that's the way we uh, you know we 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 go from uh, uh, one side to the other just before harvest. 17 is definitely a uh, ripe right vintage in Oregon, but also a vintage which has been ripening under uh, mild conditions. And therefore it's very balanced and it's very pretty vintage. It's a big vintage uh, in Oregon. So the, uh, the, the, the quantities are, are, are quite, uh, were quite high and therefore the wines are, it's not the most concentrated vintage of the last few years in, in Oregon but it's it's really it's making that up for with with prettiness and uh, and accessibility and um, it's it's really charming and I love the way uh, it has turned out I love uh, the way it's showing uh, really the the uh, the delicacy and the prettiness and the accessibility of our
1: now I'm going to echo what you said um, having tasted it now it, it is just pretty and charming. There are just no better words for that other than I can tell you it's exceptionally clean. It's Mm -hmm. so well delineated. It's, uh, you know, I I don't, I don't know if many people are familiar when I, when I talk about a wine that's made clean, but there's, to me, that means there's just no flaws. It tastes like it's supposed to taste. And I'm getting these beautiful red cherries and kind of a, um, almost a rose petal uh, Mm -hmm. note to it. That's just Really highly elevated in the wine, but it's not overpowering. It's just elegant. Could I could I use the word elegant in this? I I think maybe charming's a better word. Uh, it feels you know it it just feels like I've I've slipped into my closet and put on my favorite sweater. <laughs> Drinking this wine to to me is, is is what this this feels like to me. And uh, again, another wine that you could drink on your own or really enjoy this maybe a nice piece of grilled steelhead would just uh wow be um you know a good moving buddy with this wine uh and again it's the the Nicola J and I should by the way it's it's spelled Nicholas J for us you know um Americans who are trying to find this label pronounced Nicola J uh, but Nicholas J uh Willamette Valley now uh gentlemen, these are two amazing wines. I guess the question I have to ask is, you know, obviously, what are the price points and what is the availability of these wines? Is this direct to consumer? Can I find it uh, in in any wine shop? Um, how can I get my hands on these wines? They're because I want to.
0: <laughs> Those two wines, the Willamette Valley and the Affinity, we make more of the Willamette Valley Pinot Noir than any of the other red wine, any of the other Pinot Noirs that we make. And we also make more of the Affinité Chardonnay than we do of the Bishop Creek Chardonnay. So those are the two wines that have the widest distribution. You can find it uh, pretty much anywhere in the country via wine.com. They service most of the country. Both those wines, I believe, are available. And then as well, you find it in a lot of wine shops and restaurants in about 15 states, 16 states. We're slowly expanding that. A lot of the um, a lot of the wines are, are in restaurants and in fine wine shops. I mean, we tend to sell our wines, or the people that tend to buy our wines, I, su- I suppose, tend to be the kind of mom and pop wine shop where you have, you know, like Susie's wine shop, and you know, Susie's a total wine geek and has had this wine shop in. You know washington dc from i'm making this up but you know what i mean it's that kind of very heavily curated wine shop where you have a, a an owner and a buyer who is, is searching out what they feel to be our are interesting wines and those tend to be the kind of shops that you can find our wine
1: well i'm going to absolutely shop at those types of shops because these wines are phenomenal i am just seeing on the Tasting notes here that of the Chardonnay, you only make 120 cases of this wine. Is that is that right for the 2018 vintage?
0: Well, just for that vintage, it's it's gonna we're gonna be growing. What it is is that um, we grafted over some Pinot Gris in our Bishop Creek home vineyard uh, back in 2015, and we also planted a few acres more of Chardonnay in 2015. So we're in the process of expanding that production in 2020. We're going to end up with close to 600 cases of Chardonnay. Oh, good. <laughs> Chardonnay and the So it's slowly growing. Um, we just, as I think you, you know, we just uh, built a new winery. We renovated uh, an old cattle barn, Longhorn Cattle Barn, on the north side of the Dundee Hills. And we started making wine there with the 2020 vintage and are just opening our tasting room there. It's not really a traditional tasting room. There's no tasting room bar. It's by appointment only, but it's kind of like coming over to our house is really what we're trying to create the environment of. And so hopefully a lot of your listeners will be able to make it out to the Willamette Valley and visit us there. And of course, you can get all the wines uh, through us directly uh, on our website at nicolajay.com and and out of the tasting room. But uh, we're planning more Chardonnay at the new estate um, we'll have the ability to plant about 25 acres eventually, although that'll be a slow process over a number of years, but uh, we planted an acre a couple months ago, and we're planting another three or four acres in the fall, and we'll plant some more. John Nichols working on a nursery project for some vines coming over from uh, France, and that'll be a few years away, but we'll be planting some of those in our new vineyard uh, at the estate at the estate vineyard here in the years to come. So. We got lots of plans, but as Jean Nicolas reminds me on a very consistent basis, this is not the music business. This is the wine business. It's very slow. It takes a long time. You plant a vineyard, and then four years later, you get a little bit of fruit from that vineyard. And then 10 years later, it really starts to get some great complexity. And and 20 years later, it's really humming and getting at its peak. And so I tend to be a little bit less patient with that than he is.
1: Well, gentlemen, I got to tell you, you've got two big hits on your hand just with these wines.
0: Thanks. That's great. to about you, Scott. Well,
1: okay. Thank you both very much for joining me again. You know, Jean Nicolas from Burgundy, Jay from the West coast. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with me on the podcast today and sharing your wines with me and your story. Um, And again, Jay, thanks for the the music that I've grown up with and uh, Jean-Nicolas for the wonderful wines that you make. And so uh, that will do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. The music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Liebowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And in the meantime, do good, drink well.